This is the Otaku Nate Show, episode 18. Die Guard, Salarymen Saving the World. Fans, Otaku Nate here with another installment of the Otaku Nate Show, the anime podcast where we talk about anime that we want to talk about. Joining me this week from a Discord server is. Hey, my name is Bronx Kuma. Uh, I'm from New York. Uh, for those of you who have heard my name, I actually used to be a manager at Magfest and I used to be a blogger and editor. For Chiptunes Win, which was a Chiptunes record label that was heavily associated with both MacFest and PAX East. Um, the record label has been discontinued, but I do still pop up here and there on various servers, um, providing insight on Chiptune community and also doing fan art on occasion for different communities. So I've been graciously invited to this podcast and I'm looking forward to being a part of it. Thanks for having me, mate. No problem. It is a pleasure. No problem, man. I am delighted to be joined by such famous engine. I mean, a famous co-host, I should say. <clears throat> Sorry, but but speaking of engines, today we are going to be talking about Die Guard, an anime from 1999 released by Studio Zebek. It was directed by Seiji Mizushima, a man who has been at this game for quite some time in the anime industry. He's most famous for directing the 2003 adaptation of Full Metal Alchemist and Gundam 00, but he's still active to this day, and some of the more recent series he's directed of note include Concrete Revolutio and D4DJ. The writer for this was Fumihiko Shimo, who wrote one of my all-time favorites and something that will be discussed on the show soon. He wrote the first three series of Full Metal Panic, then he kind of dipped in quality a little as he wrote both Gravion and uh, Burst Angel. But then, he oh. went, but then he went to KyoAni and redeemed himself as he wrote the key trilogy of Air, Kenon, and Clanad. And he, like Seiji Mizushima, is still active writing such series as New Game and How Heavy Are the Dumbbells You Lift. Yeah, no, fantastic. If I'm not mistaken, wasn't he also involved in the writing of The Day I Became a God as well? No, he was not. Mm. Yeah, you're thinking of Jun Maeda, which is a... There we go. But we're getting off track. So, what's the general premise of Die Guard, Mr. Kuma? So, Die Guard is a show about a company called 21st Century Protective, if I remember correctly. They essentially have a robot that the government had let go of because they didn't see it as an efficient means of defense called Die Guard. And that robot mostly gets used for public relations for the company. There's an incident that occurred 18 years prior to the story in which these creatures start attacking Japan. And the first incident that occurs, Japan uses what's essentially a nuclear weapon to stop that monster. 
the monsters disappear for a time, but at the beginning of Die Guard, they start to reappear. And the protagonist and deuteragonist of the show feeling like they have the capability of doing something that the military can't because they have Die Guard taken upon themselves to respond to the situation. And what ensues is a very interesting dynamic of this company working with the government to respond to these crises and this anime ends up delving into not only business life aspects of japan but also uh, militaristic uh, protocol and sort of senpai kohai relations within the business industry in japan it was something that i remember a friend of mine named alec had told me was shown briefly on tsunami back in the early 2000s because tsunami had this one day where they did a splattering of different mecha anime. And he had mentioned that this show was something that caught his interest, but I had never taken the time to watch as a youth. I only took the time to watch it more recently when you'd considered inviting me to the show. And I will admit the show was a bit of a slow burn for me. I wasn't so sure I would be into it at first, but as things progressed and the story continued along, I actually was surprised at how nuanced some of the aspects of storytelling and character development was. It's it's kind of a, a gem in the rough. It's kind of a hidden gem. I took a lot more from it than I was expecting, and I kind of saw some of my younger self and the younger characters seeing the sort of development of a relationship in particular between the main character and the person who would become his boss and also the liaison between military that was a relationship i was really finding myself drawn to but i don't want to sort of dominate the conversation at this point because i definitely like to hear your thoughts about the story and what sort of drew you to it in the first place because i remember you mentioned you'd seen this and you have fond memories of the show prior to me watching it and you inviting me in don't have to worry about dominating the conversation because you kind of already did because the first thing I usually ask people when it comes to reviewing anime on this show is where did you first hear of this show and what were your initial impressions and you gave me just what I wanted all right I had never heard of Die Guard because this was during what I call the bubble period of anime when I was first getting into fandom at around 2006 2007 and I never really paid attention to some of the other titles by ADV. Like, I was familiar with super robot titles like Go Danner and Galgaigar, which will both be mentioned later on down the line. But the way I first heard of Die Guard, it wasn't through word of mouth or somebody recommending it to me. I saw the DVDs at a convention, or maybe it was at a book-off. I forget. I think it was at book-off NYC. But... What caught me wasn't just the artwork, it's that this was back in the day when anime DVDs came in these big, chonky bricks. Oh, yeah. I love the bricks, but do continue. Yeah, it wasn't like a box set where you have several slim DVD cases uh, crammed into one tiny little case. This was when they had, like, those DVD cases that opened like a book. Yeah. <laughs> and you had, like... And, like, the discs came on pages. Yes, yes. And each disc, if it was far back enough, it was only, like, maybe two or three episodes a disc. So if you had a really long series, you had a a chonky boy of a case. 
and I have that brick on my shelf. I'm looking at it. It is... It's just a relic of a time past. That's why I love about the packaging. But we've gotten off track here, but... What intrigued me about it was the artwork, because I looked at the robot design and I thought, huh, this design, it it kind of looks like Godanner's twin drive form, but it's also a little different. It looks like a 70s giant robot. And I read the blurb on the back and it's like, oh, a bunch of office people taking control of a giant robot. That's interesting. And eventually I found that chonky brick used at a toy store and I picked it up, I started watching it for the show because I was fairly curious about it, and I pretty much agree with what you said. I liked that it has the formula of an old super robot show, but rather than just our protagonists dawdling about while the villains plan their evil scheme of the week, it more or less delves into office politics and their relation with the Japanese government rather than it just being your typical giant robot show, but with office people. Yeah, no, it definitely caught me off guard in its storytelling and its presentation. And it's funny that you mentioned its similarities to the older giant mecha of the 70s and 80s, because aside from mechs you mentioned, like Gal Gygard uh, and such, the one that it reminded me of, a mech I have a very deep nostalgia for, it was localized in America through, I think, Saban as Macron 1, but in Japan, it's called Go Shogun. Um, and I have a very deep nostalgia for Go Shogun. I used to rent a particular VHS of that show very frequently as a kid. And seeing mechs kind of lumber about in that sort of big O sort of fashion doing their thing. And that's another mech that I'm really happy at. Gal Gygar, or rather, what's it called? Our buddy here, um, Digard, uh, reminded me of his primary weapon, the Buster, reminded me a lot of Big O's heavy punch, but I don't want to get off track. But yeah, I really love the classic red, blue, black design of Digard. And it was just nice to see this sort of, what I'd imagined for the creators was a nostalgic trip for them as well because it almost seems like with the way the story plays out it's almost like i'd imagine the creator of the show and of the manga is almost exploring their youth through the lens of adulthood in a professional setting and that's something i really enjoy seeing played out i want to know your thoughts about it too especially some of the dynamics between um akagi and his senpai in the show their relationship in particular really really i think is the pinnacle of the the show for me it's funny you mentioned the big o because i looked up anime news network for the air dates die guard aired a week before the big o <laughs> wow wow what incredible timing and what incredible synchronicity of design and implementation of weapon systems that's sort of like massive like blow or like pile bunker sort of thing. I'm sure other mechs have had it, but it's something that seems so synonymous with mechs of that time of both Big O and Die Guard. I almost feel like outside of a couple niche games, like some of the later Super Robot Wars, Endless Frontier stuff, like Geshpens, like you don't really see that sort of attack or armament on mechs anymore. 
it's sort of gone by the wayside, which is a shame because I kind of like seeing that power in mecha designs. As far as my thoughts on it go, we're going to break the show down for a little bit before we get into the meat and potatoes of it all. So let's yeah. start off with the animation and, uh, oh dear. Oh, I, why don't, why don't you start with your thoughts on it first? Because I have, I have thoughts too. I have strong thoughts. Well, it's an early digital animated show. And it certainly does look like one with the flat looking character designs, uh, the janky sort of movement that basically says our animators are still adjusting to this new technology. Please be patient. The color palette, which it's a little more palatable than some other early digital animated shows, but you know, it's not there quite yet. The lack of detailed shading, like there is no way around it. Die Guard screams 1999 digital animation like the problem i have isn't necessarily the color palette the shade or the movement it's just that in certain shots the characters faces look for lack of a better term doughy yeah i can agree with that but i think what bothers me about that doughiness and i think this ties into sort of the style of studio zibic is so at this point die guard came out in 99 and if i remember correctly studio zibik's premiere work was sorcerer hunters in 96 if i'm not mistaken if that's correct being the transition the immediate transition a very short time three years um to go from something hand-drawn and as sleek and stylish as sorcerer hunters to something like die guard what i noticed is and this is a problem I was discussing with one of our friends within that particular Discord we're both in. Something he noticed with Masamune Shiro's artwork as he transitioned from hand-drawn to digital, which is that uh, I felt that when it comes to this transitionary period, there's this difficulty in balancing style and not in Shiro's case, it's realism. I don't think it's realism in Die Guard, but what I feel it is, and I think you see this in particular with the color palette and how they do highlights, is the line work still looks like they're trying to capture the same sort of stylistic choices they made with faces and sorcerer hunters and anime of that time, but because of the digital medium they're working in, the nuance of contours that you can get with pen and ink on cell versus something in a Wacom or another digital tablet, it's lost. It's lost and it's something that you can't, you don't see recovered for a very long time in the animation industry while they're going through this transition. And it is it is rough. Die Guard is not a terrible looking show, but like, a lot of things at that time it is not well aged visually i think for a lot of people who are just hearing about this series that are curious about maybe taking a look back on it it might be a bit of a wall to overcome especially if they're spoiled for the visual nuances that we have in animation now eastern or otherwise you can definitely tell that Die Guard was sort of meant to be cell animated at points, but because 
of the transition from cell to digital, a lot of that aesthetic gets lost in the shuffle. I will always say that the worst period for animation in anime was that jump to digital from like the late 90s to the mid 2000s. By 2005, 2006 or 7, we started seeing studios figuring out how to utilize it. But if you go back and watch like some of the shows that aired in from like 2000 to 2004, some of the aesthetics in that show are just oof. The color palette is virtually non-existent. It's unpalatable, for a better word. The character movement just feels sort of uncanny valley. There's no real shading. Everything looks so flat. There are several points in Die Guard where I saw color bleeding through some of the lines on the characters' faces. No, you're, you're definitely right about that. It was especially noticeable in close-ups during more dialogue-heavy scenes. You know, scenes like where you see um, Akagi and his senpai talking uh, within the restaurant, talking about sushi and how Akagi's going to enjoy the sushi so much, you know, that he's going to pay for his senpai. And another, uh, what's it called? Another scene in which you see uh, the other male pilot, uh, Ayama, uh, talking to his former flame when they're up in uh, Hokkaido in the cafe. There are these moments that, you know, if you take them within a capsule and you listen to just the dialogue, they're good character development moments. You get little bits of insight. But if you're paying attention to the animation, I mean, it's not wonky. Like when you see Clannad or air eyes just sort of like drooping off to the side. But it is, <laughs> it is a little rough for sure. <laughs> the animation has not aged well, but that said... I do like the designs in this show. Yeah, no, they are simple and effective. And so I'm not currently in the animation industry anymore, but I actually did go to school to SVA and studied animation for a while. And one of the things that as far as character design goes for animation is the concept of silhouette. Do your characters stand out enough within their simplicity of shape uh so that way they're recognizable if silhouetted and i would say for the most part yeah these characters serve the purpose of being plain enough office workers to not look like you know they're thrown in anime card game protagonist but you can definitely tell which characters which uh, once silhouetted, whether they're in their mech pilot uniforms or they're just in their office wear, it is pleasing to the eye to see. And the mech designs, uh, especially the subtle differences between Die Guard and Koku Balger, I actually like them quite a bit. I like the fact that Koku Balger has more militaristic aspects that aren't obvious when you first look at him, but seeing things like his hidden arm missile launcher or his his Gundam-style head Vulcans was actually a nice touch to see, and I appreciate those little differences uh, between the two. It's nice. I like when designers do little things like that with similarly designed characters. And the character designs for this were done by Mitsuru Ishihara, who mostly did designs for children's shows like Bakuso Kyodai, Dice, Chosoku Spinner... Mega Man Battle Network, or Mega Man NT Warrior, as it was called here in the States, and uh, Rin Daughters of Nemesine. 
You know, that kid-friendly series about an immortal lesbian who gets tortured in erotic ways? Fun for the whole family! <laughs> ah. Oh, geez. It's actually interesting that you mentioned, you know, the the connection to, to Mega Man Battle Network because that was also, if I remember correctly, not only a future studio Zibic project, or at least at that time a future one, but it was one of the projects that Zibic did with B-Train, if I'm not mistaken. Is that correct? No, it was not. Really? I could have sworn B-Train had some involvement with, or was it Mega Man EXE that B-Train did? Also, you talked about the mech design. The mech design and the monster design was done by Takeshi Takakura, designer on things like Macross Frontier, the Aquarian series, Galaxy Angel. Most famously, he did the designs for another Zebec show, Martin's successor Nadesco, and recently he did designs for Id Zero, Alderaman on the Sky, and he did design work for one of my favorite series from the 2000s, Planetus. I'm not familiar with Planetus, but I will say uh, Id Zero, or as I think they called it on Netflix, they said ID Zero whenever you watch the dub. It was a surprisingly decent show for what it was. Uh, it was one of those, you know, like 12 episode series that, you know, once you, you binge it, you're like, huh, that wasn't terrible. So, yeah, I can actually see, especially uh, as we talk about sort of like the transition in styles from hand-drawn to computer an ID Zero uses heavily 3D modeled mechs, which seems to be the norm now. I have mixed feelings about that, but you could definitely see some of his stylistic choices uh, in those mech designs as well, especially some of the heavier hitters in that show. So I'm I'm glad to hear that that person is still actively working in the industry and providing their artistic talents. That that makes me happy. On the subject of design and aesthetics, Diegard. One thing I appreciate about it is that the show really emphasizes the age of the robot. That Diegard has been in service for some time, but is now mostly used as a static display piece, which they establish in the very first episode. Aesthetic-wise, it looks like a 70s super robot. Specifically, some of the lesser-known ones like, like Balatak, Zero Tester, Gordion... And, of course, for one of its weapons, Getter Robo. Ah, uh, good old Getter Robo. The head, though, looks like it took influence from the King Jader from Gaugaigar. Did you notice that similarity? I actually did, yeah. I've only seen a scant amount of clips and episodes of uh, Gaugaigar. But, yeah, no, you could definitely see the influence of, like, the different mechs of that time. Uh, in particular, um, the the classic head wings and the pointed crest. I love those touches and those throwbacks to mechs of that period. It's really impressive the way it's all put it together. That said, I did notice that the twin drive version of Godanner from one of my absolute favorite super robot shows, Godanner, borrows heavily from Diegard's design. Namely, in the shoulders, the proportions, um, the forearms, and the legs. It's hard to explain, but look up an image of Diegard, and then look up Godanner Twin Drive. The similarities oh, no. are there. No, no, I've definitely seen Godanner, especially in this sort of, like, uh, like you said, the Twin Drive mode. Because my girlfriend is actually a very heavy collector. Figures, we have, I'd say, between bunnies and 
monoroids and stuff. We have all close to 200 figures at this point. And we're constantly looking at Good Smile's Max Alloy rendition of Gardener in the twin drive mode is fantastic uh, for collectors. But you can definitely see the inspiration that they draw from Die Guard for this. The color palette, the framing of the face by the crest that sense of strength within the forearms in particular and just looking at the forearms again it almost looks like Godinar sort of borrows what i liked from coca boger which was the almost revolver aspect of like the hidden sort of missile launcher it doesn't mean that he actually has them but just the fact that it looks like they're there it's actually really impressive god yeah no this thing oozes die guards influence for sure uh, i love it I might have to pick up this figure now that we're talking about it. He looks great. Yeah, they actually released a Super Robot Chogokin of Die Guard. So, I don't know what the popularity of this show was like in Japan, but somebody out there watched it, apparently. Yeah, apparently they did. I also like the designs for the Heterodyne. They're very minimalistic, very geometric, would you say? There's actually, I'm glad you mentioned the monster design, because the monster's design... Uh, in this show reminds me of another title. Are you familiar with the title called Alien 9? I've seen the OAV, but I don't remember much about it. Okay, so I won't get into too many details about Alien 9, but one of the things I liked about the creature design of Alien 9 was that the creator of that series, the manga artist, um, used to be a civil and mechanical engineer before he got into making manga. And his philosophy for creating alien life and monsters was what could he do that would combine the technical aspects of tools used in construction with aspects of life here on Earth that seem almost alien. And in particular, the life that he liked to draw inspiration from and something I noticed was a very big theme for the heterodyne in uh, Die Guard was fungus. A lot of the monsters in Die Guard are based on various fungi. Some of them sprout multiple trees. Some of them explode into spores and create these branching pathways to connect to other aspects of the city. Um, and I think exploring this sort of almost alien nature of fungi, how it seems so very familiar and yet so alien once you really look up close to it was a perfect choice for this show especially because the way the heterodyne move are such a perfect boil for die guard die guard like you said he's aging he's slow he's lumbering a lot of the heterodyne are very fluid and fast and nimble in the way he worked and seeing monster fights approached in an aspect that requires more planning and work uh, as opposed to overpowered blasting was a real treat, especially as the series continued. I really enjoyed that aspect of the show a lot. And I would say if you're interested, even in just the alien design aspect I mentioned of Alien 9, it might be worth watching even just for a little bit. Although I would recommend more likely you read it than watch it it's one of those anime titles that also visually suffers the the early 2000s early digital animation adaptations it has not aged well i had written down that 
The heterodyne remind me of certain designs of the angels from Evangelion, namely Shamshel, Ramael, Matarael, and Zuriel. But your comparison to fungi or other plant life is a much better comparison than mine. No. Although considering that you said that they're based on fungi, I can only assume that the master behind them is N from Dorohidoro. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, one of the heterodyne they fight is a giant mushroom. It is. It is. It's a giant mushroom, and it sprouts up smaller ones along the city block as they're trying to blast it. It's great. Oh my god, it is N from Dorohidoro. <laughs> I also agree with you on the movement, though. Like, the way they move, it's like marine life. The one in particular moves like a jellyfish. The one that looks like a giant weather balloon. That's actually one of my favorite episodes of the series as far as like an approach to battles and how Diegard does successfully set itself apart from other giant mecha within the genre is just the fact that Diegard and their team has to be very precise in what it does because Diegard is very much a show about why logistically a giant robot is not feasible in real life. Mm -hmm. Just the transformation scene. I'm sorry, it makes me laugh. Just the way they have to drive their trucks and drive their planes and set it down and put them together. It's one of the most entertaining aspects of this show. And I love that the creators are so grounded in the fact that Yes, we love giant robots, but giant robots are not a realistic solution. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think we've said pretty much all we can say on the animation front, and we'll talk about the transformation sequence when we get into the meat and potatoes of the show. Oh, yeah. But for now, do you want to talk about the soundtrack? As far as sound design versus soundtrack, I'm going to be very honest with you. Opening and ending-wise, those grew on me slowly. I wasn't a big fan of them at first, but they grew on me as the series went on. Individual sound music tracks within the show, they didn't really do anything for me. I feel like there are aspects of certain songs that sort of harken back to that golden era of giant mechs, in particular when they are trying to do the transformations within like that fight in particular we mentioned in the episode where they're fighting like the weather balloon sort of heterodyne and just sort of hearing this magnificent sort of like da, 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 sort of as die guard is being disassembled and moved down again those moments are good but uh, there are moments where the soundtrack is kind of forgettable for me outside of a couple key scenes that either made me laugh with how ridiculous the situation is or um just something i don't know the soundtrack wasn't too memorable for me in comparison i know you had mentioned in particular that the composer was somebody of note to you and i want to hear your thoughts on this because it was not something that really struck a strong chord with me outside of key moments i would agree with you i feel that the songs that play during the slower moments are kind of forgettable it's your Typical late 90s comedy anime sort of OST with all the synthesized MIDI instruments. But once they get in the robot and that old 70s style brass plays starts playing, that's when the OST picks up. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Once it's triumphant die guard moments or die guard in danger moments, 
those are the moments that musically that kind of kick ass. But outside of that, the music is very ho-hum. And like I said, even the intro and ending songs, they are kind of slow burns. You will probably not like them upon first listen. It's more like something that'll grow on you as you get more invested into the series. It's funny we describe the soundtrack as being kind of middling because there are two credited composers for this series and both are pretty big names. The first one is Kenji Kawai. Why does Kenji's name sound familiar? He was pretty much Mamoru Oshii's go-to composer because a lot of Oshii productions have Kenji Kawai as the composer. He did the soundtracks for the Pat Labor movies, for Jinro, for Ghost in the Shell. What? No. No, you've got to be joking me. I... No, that's a lie. That's a lie. This, this, this middling soundtrack had him? As we say on the internet... I shit you not. Oh. Oh. What an upsetting revelation. Outside of being Oshi's right-hand man, he also did the music for Ranma 1 Half, Death Note, and is currently active today doing the music for Mob Psycho 100. Oh my god. And Mamoru Oshi's most recent series, Vlad Love. Oh my god. As for the other half of the soundtrack, that was done by Kohei Tanaka. And how fitting that we mention Gaugaigar, because Kohei Tanaka did the music for all things Gaugaigar. Yes, he did. He Yes, he did. He also did Bastard, if I'm not mistaken, didn't he? That is correct. And he also did the music for pretty much everything related to Sakura Wars, I don't know if he did the new game or not. How did these two people come together and, and not make something amazing for this show? What happened? Also relevant to the Discord server that we're on, he also did the music for The Laughing Salesman. Wow, I mean, I guess not everything could be a hit, but wow. Wow. I'm flabbergasted. What do I even say to that? I really don't know what... To, oh my god. And he also did the music for Planet With recently. And he is the composer for all things One Piece. Oh my god. And G Gundam. Oh my god, my favorite Gundam series. And he did the first mm. opening for JoJo. Oh. And music for Gunbuster. Like, just oh. look up this guy's resume, oh, man. My God. Pain. Pain. This knowledge is pain. Take it back. Oh, my God. Take it back. I don't... I'm going to pretend you, the last, like, five minutes didn't happen. Take it back. <laughs> like I said, you know, not everything can be a hit. But how can a soundtrack end up so middling when you have such people working on it did they not have a good working relationship was it a budgetary issue i legitimately want to know now i'm guessing it was two different composers with two different visions because kenji kawaii tends to make soundtracks that are a lot more low-key and a lot more muted whereas kohei tanaka is a lot more bombastic in his compositions yes, he absolutely is like he is the sound of my teenage years he absolutely is not on the level of somebody like a Hiroyuki Sawano, but more of a classical bombast. 
Yeah. By the way, you want me to punch you in the gut again? <sighs> do you know who arranged the ending song? Go ahead. You can't. You can't do anything worse. Go ahead. The ending song was arranged, not composed, but arranged by Yoko Kano. No, I'm. I'm going to leave this conversation. <laughs> Don't you say that. <laughs> Bearing oh. false witness is a sin. Don't say that. Nope, it's on Anime News oh. Network, man. It's in the ending credits. I did not make this up. Oh. 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 My life is falling apart. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, let's cleanse the palate by going over some voice actors, shall we? Yeah, let's let's talk about what's that in particular. Did you want to talk about the dub or the sub? Because I'll admit I watched the dub of this. I didn't watch the sub. Okay. Well, I'll go through the Japanese voice actors then. Okay. Akagi is voiced by Kentaro Ito. Anybody who watched Shonen anime back in 2006-2007, he is Renji in Bleach and Choji in Naruto. He is Yoshitake in Golden Kamui. And for everybody who remembered this show, he's the Japanese voice of Boss in Hamtaro. That voice. I love that voice so much. That sort of raspy, sort of almost baritone. I kind, I kind of dig it. I love it so much. I have fond memories of watching Hamtaro and poorly fan-subbed episodes of Bleach on my friend's laptop. So I know that voice very well. Ibuki is voiced by Akiko Hiramatsu. Her most famous role is Nene in Bubblegum Crisis and Miyuki Kobayakawa in You're Under Arrest. I think my generation will know her best as Bordeaux and BT in the Dot Hack series. Wow, you mentioned two titles I have not watched since college. You're Under Arrest and Bubblegum Crisis. Wow, you are taking me back. Keep going. I actually am liking this Japanese cast so far. Aoyama is voiced by Shinichiro Miki, most famous for being in both Full Metal series. He is Roy Mustang in Full Metal Alchemist and Kurtz Weber in Full Metal Panic. He's also Tatsuma Sakamoto in Gintama and Takami in Initial D. Yeah, another solid, strong voice, very masculine, uh, very prominent. Uh, at times, especially when you're watching Full Metal, he he owns the scenes that he's in when he's playing Roy Mustang. So another strong voice that if I were to go back and rewatch Die Guard in Japanese, I'm definitely looking forward to hearing. The chief of our company, Chief Osugi, is voiced by Masashi Hirose, most famous for being Rumbaral in Gundam. Wow. Would you say that Die Guard is no Zaku boy? No, he is not <laughs> Wow, what a great reference. Wow. I, oh, man. Agent Shirota is voiced by Kenichi Ono. He is Asurada in the Cyber Formula GPX series. He is Zengar in the Super Robot Wars series. Who's Zengar again? It's been ages since I've played some of the Super Robot Wars games. Uh, I remember Zengar now. Yes, he's a, he's a very bold oh, man. Oh, there he is. Big old sword, yeah. And since we mentioned Nadesco a few times... He is Joe Umitsubame in Gekiganger 3. Ah, okay. 
yeah, I do. I do remember Sengar now, and yeah, no, Joe uh, and Geki Ganger is definitely an iconic role. So this, the Japanese cast sounds solid. Wait, it sounds really good. But I'm not done yet. Oh. Rika Domeki, the resident nerd slash scientific expert, is voiced by Mayumi Shintani, a woman with a small resume, but oh, uh, what a resume it is. She's been in a lot of post-2000 Gainax slash Trigger shows, including Rika's mom in Gridman, Lucia Flex in Promare, but her two most famous roles are Haruhara Haruko in Furikuri, and Nonon in Kill la Kill. Nani sore. Wow. 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 Her like you said, small but impressive work. Those roles all stick out quite a bit. Her, vo her voice is incredibly recognizable if you hear it in any of those series. Yes. Very yes, nasally, very raspy, very nerdy. Yes, yes. And as you mentioned, uh, the character she plays in Die Guard, she is a gem. I love her, and I'm glad that she's the Japanese voice actress for her. I can't picture any other voice actress doing uh, that character at all. That is fantastic. And finally, President Okuchi is voiced by Takaya Hashi. He's famous for being Toki in Fist of the North Star, Gilliam in Outlaw Star, you might know him best recently as being Gustav Honda in Fire Force, and I'll always remember him as Ernest Mecklinger in Legend of the Galactic Heroes. Wow. Hokey. God damn, this man's been at it for a while. Wow, what an impressive cast. That definitely did make up for the pain of the soundtrack. Thank you. I appreciate this. But it does bring into mind the stark contrast of the Japanese production versus the, the dub that I saw because I looked up a little bit about the actors and the studio that seemed to work on them, uh, Monster Island. Monster Island didn't seem like a prominent studio. It seemed like almost like they were a subsidiary of an ADV. And also the work uh, listing of this cast they seem to sort of work together on a few different projects together, but those projects were sparse with the most prominent ones sort of being Jing, the King of Bandits. And it also seems that they sort of dropped off the radar around the same time. Like the last project I remember seeing the main cast working on together was as some of the superheroes that you could play as in the DC MMO that came out in 2011, the one that was on PlayStation three, if I'm not mistaken, they kind of fell off the map after that. I've tried looking for work that they've done since then, and there doesn't appear to be any voice acting work from them after that, unless they're using aliases other than what's listed in the credits for the shows they've been in. Um, do you have any insight as to this? Because I find it really strange that such... Well, I wouldn't say like they're prominent voice actors, but they're decent at what they do, and I find it strange that they sort of fell off the map. I didn't really do much research into Monster Island, but you hit the nail on the head. I call them ADV's B-Squad. While ADV was busy dubbing such wonderful shows like Jinky Extend, Mabaraho, and Cyber Team in Akihabara, 
they would usually hand off other projects that they needed to be dubbed down to Monster Island, which was based out of Austin. I have only seen a handful of dubs from Monster Island and, well, to put it mildly, I haven't really been impressed with their work. They did the dub of that Sonic OAV and that dub is really ridiculously overacted to the point where it's so bad it's funny. They also did the dub for Sakura Wars, which was just plain bad. And if you follow my show, they did the dub for Lost Universe, and there are a couple names from that dub in there. And that dub was also not very good. But I gotta say, this has been the best dub from Monster Island Studios that I have heard from them. And I don't know if it's a matter where they actually got a competent director, or if the actors actually learned how to adjust. But the acting in this one is... Not that bad. There are a couple of secondary performances that I found to be a bit on the weak side, mostly from like background characters or one-offs, but the main cast is pretty good. Yeah, no, I'd have to agree. Um, I do know a couple of those one-offs because my wife, as she was passing, uh, walking past me doing like chores here and there, um, and she would watch me watch the series. There were a couple like one-off characters, like little kids that the main cast interacts with at like hazard sites that have really atrocious voice acting. Like some of the little kids start crying in the later episodes that they encounter. And that crying is awful, but that's par for the course with a lot of anime from this bubble period. You know, you watch other anime from the time like Master Keaton as well. And some of the voice acting there from one-off or background characters, you know, you take it with a grain of salt. It is what it is. But you mentioned Sakura Wars as another title that Monster Island worked on that I actually have a sort of strange nostalgia for, if only because it came into my life uh, in a time where things weren't so good. I will acknowledge that the dub for Sakura Wars is not good. There are a couple performances I kind of like in it that are strange choices, and I kind of like them because they're strange choices, but they're not competent. And I think, uh, in particular, you hit the nail on the head when you mentioned that what stands out about the performances in Die Guard from the main cast is that they grow and adjust as the series goes along. I remember you mentioned briefly as I was first getting into the series, you asked what I thought of the voice acting. I thought the voice acting was a little rough at first. I remember you said you kind of liked it overall, even from the beginning. Kagi's voice actor in the first couple episodes, I actually found him a little abrasive. And I get that his character is supposed to be young. And so he does the screaming shonen thing. But I felt like his screaming was a little more raspy in the first few episodes. I think the cast and especially Kagi's voice actor really got into the swing of things by around episode five or episode six. Things really start to smooth out around then as the story not only hits its sort of stride, but the actors seem to hit their stride around there too. And most of the performances are pretty solid. Um, I liked what I heard from the show. And I will say though, if Die Guard is the best that this studio had to offer, while it's not terrible by any means, it does make me hesitant to hear some of their other work outside of Sakura Wars. Because again, I have nostalgia for Sakura Wars, but I'll acknowledge it's not good. And some of the choices they made in particular, like my favorite character, as an aside, Kana from Sakura Wars, they got a very raspy man to do Kana. I mean, if you hear her speak and some of the directions they give her, it is not good. So I'm attributing 
this to probably good direction and competent casting the way you are. I totally agree. Joey Hood did a good job as Akagi playing this sort of brash, hot-blooded hero that sort of learns to mature as the show goes on, and I can definitely see that the actor grows along with his character. If I could bring up a similar situation, I sort of felt that Julianne Taylor, God bless her, I love her as an actress, but when she played Tanabe in the aforementioned Planetess, she was really chewing the scenery. But as the show went on, she grew into the role and learned how to pull back, and... Speaking of pulling back, Steve Metz, who I last saw on this show as Kane in Lost Universe, also learned how to mellow out in this series, because when he played Kane, he basically had no off switch. His voice was described by my co-host as like a voice actor doing a parody of a stereotypical anime character. Let me play a sample for you just for no, a comparison. Please do. please do, because I'm only familiar with Steve Metz through this performance, so I really want to hear this dichotomy of, of scenes. Go ahead, please do. Yeah, the comparison is shocking. So, I hear you're the right fella to see. That's right. Okay, tell me we didn't come all this way for a camel. Shh, just wait. Great God of fire, great God of sun, great God of camel, thank you for your heavenly gifts of drink. Thank you for sharing your precious fluids. You did all this for a drink? You don't have to pray for that. You just don't understand. How much did it cost? I can't say. Why not? Oh, you'll be too upset. Uh-uh. Yes, you will. Come on. <laughs> Sorry about my little whiny friend here. She's naughty. You want to see whiny? Oh, not now. Speaking of Lost Universe, Larissa Wolcott plays one of the bridge bunnies in this, and she is also a lot better, but I also think that's because she's playing a character that requires her to use that sort of whiny, nasally voice that she has. She's probably most famous as being the woman who replaced Jessica Calvello as XL in XL Saga. You know, it's funny. We were discussing earlier in that Discord uh, anime that everybody else has seen that I haven't. Yeah, I've never seen XL Saga. I'm aware of some of the, the goofy shit in it. I've you've probably, you've probably seen clips of it from AMV Hell. Oh, yes, I definitely have. Speaking of the Sonic movie dub, we have Martin Burke, who was Sonic the Hedgehog, Bill Wise, who was Knuckles, and... Ed Neal in this dub. Martin Burke plays Diegard's chief mechanic, Yosuke, and you can hear the ADV Sonic dub in his voice. Yes, you really can. It is very prominent. I will say that Ed Neal was perfect casting as Chief Osagi. Yeah, he worked out quite nicely. I definitely was not able to tell compared to... The last actor you mentioned that he was a character from the Sonic OVA. He had the right amount of subdued and at times sort of gruff to pass off as their chief. It was pretty great. My favorite character in the show, though, was definitely Special Agent Shirota. And uh, I think Mick Darcy did a really good job playing him. And especially as his character grew uh, with Akagi. Um, the sort of interplay that he had with Joey 
in this show was really spot on. He kind of has like this very stuffy sort of secret agent sort of voice, would, would you say? Yeah, no, he definitely does. He takes his work very seriously. You could tell that, you know, when he gets into character, he means it. And Shirota, especially at the beginning of the series, before he opens up to the rest of the Die Guard crew and everybody else at 21st Century Protection, you can tell that he is very much in line with protocol. And I think Mick plays that off perfectly of somebody who realizes that the rules are there for a reason and you have to abide by them. And then seeing him slowly open up and realize that teamwork and leadership isn't about following protocol, but learning to be open to what fits the moment and what you might have to improvise in order to make something happen. Definitely the strongest voice acting of the show for me as far as the dub goes. Par none. My favorite character, my favorite voice actor of the show, for sure. And uh, Bill Wise, who is Knuckles, plays uh, Chief Okuchi. His performance, I could take or leave. Like, you're not going to top Takayahashi in that case. No, you're not. You're not. I think that's it for the dub. I was honestly surprised at how good this was. And had Monster Island had more dubs like this, I think they would get work. But I think ADV's closure and liquidation after the bubble burst in 2008 pretty much meant the end for Monster Island. Yeah, no, it definitely would seem to me like that's the case, you know. You know, you look at studios as they sort of popped around that time. You look at ADV for closing. You look at Genion for closing. There's no way a studio as small as Monster Island would have survived that wave of shuddering. It was not going to happen. I miss some of those dubbing studios from the early 2000s, like Coastal Studios. I, I really miss Ocean, but apparently they just become too expensive for people to work with, apparently. But that's just speculation on my behalf. But anyway, huh. we've, we've talked enough. Like we, We've talked about at length. Let's just get into the characters and the story going over our core cast, starting with Shunsuke Akagi, and I like this guy. He's... Very much your classic 70s super robot protagonist. He's hot-blooded, he's rash, he charges in head first, he usually goes in without thinking and just does what he thinks is right, even though there are extra steps that you have to take when dealing with the heterodyne. The problem is that with the world he's set in, he's basically what happens if you were to take somebody like a Koji Kabuto or Ryoma Nagare and put up walls around their character saying, no, you have to go this way, don't go that way, etc. He's a Gonagai robot pilot in a real-world setting. He absolutely is, and it definitely plays into what I was laughing about before, about how Die Guard itself is a very impracticable solution to the problem of the heterodyne, even though, against all odds, it is the only solution that works and you can tell that when you look at akagi and you see especially in the beginning his eagerness to help and sort of do the right thing there is that youthful energy that die guard is a catalyst for you could see um as he mentions you know throughout the episodes as he's at odds or with other characters or he's talking about like his personal growth and his views his position 
within the company and his opportunity with Diegard to essentially be a superhero is is his main driving force through a lot of the show. And the fact that the world doesn't work that way um, really reminded me a lot. I felt a lot of empathy for him uh, with me being a young man and first entering the workforce and wanting certain things to go a certain way and realizing like, no, once you're in an industry, regardless of whether it's one you intended to be in or not, there's already protocol in place and there's ways you can go about improvising and working within it that may not follow strictly by the textbook, but you still have to do it in a way that's congruent with your team. And seeing that growth from Akagi throughout the show, even if it's slow, it's it's a nice touch. It really fits the juxtaposition of Diegard himself in this world quite well. That's one thing I really like about Diegard is that each character in the show gets an arc, and Akagi... His story is very much a coming-of-age kind of story. He's just been given this incredible gift of piloting Diegard, a symbol of protection and defense of Japan for these evil alien invaders, and he just wishes to go out there and do everything his way, only for it to realize that, you know, you can't just rush out and do things the way you want to do them. You have to follow protocol, etc. Absolutely. And I think once he starts to realize that, even if it's not the way he wants to realize it, is as his relationship starts to bloom with special agent Sirota. You know, you look at Sirota in the early episodes of him dealing with Akagi and Akagi's reaction to being reprimanded for his terrible report taking, his constant use, which I find comical, of him using onomatopoeia in his military reports. I'm just going like, bang, boom, in a fight. Like, no, you can't do that. And his anger towards that, also seeing that everybody else around him, when he reacts this way at a lunch table, and Sirota doesn't really respond to him, it establishes early on what's going to be their solid senpai kohai relationship within the show one that akagi and the rest of the team is going to be dependent upon in the later episodes and i like seeing that akagi's adversity within the form of sirota and the larger paradigm of their corporation and relationship with the government at large is what forces him to change it's very compelling it's the slowest arc of any of the primary characters within this show, but it is a good payoff. It is nice to see him mature and respond to things differently in the later episodes, for sure. Next, we have our female pilot of Diegard, and that is Momoi Ibuki. She perhaps has the most tragic of all the character arcs, because we learn very early on that her father was a key researcher of the Heterodyne invaders, and that her father was killed during the first Heterodyne incident. And several times through the series, she reflects on missing her father and has to come to terms with her stepfather. Yeah, no, her, I would say, as much as I enjoyed watching the relationship between Akagi and Shirota, watching Obuki's growth 
and watching her have to come to terms you know, with her her memories of her father. There's even an episode specifically dedicated to this, which I think is one of the best written episodes in the show. The episode False Memories. She's a woman that has yet to go through the five stages of grief after losing her father. But as you mentioned, during the False Memories arc where I've bleeped out because of spoilers. Ah, okay, very well. <laughs> We finally get to see her going through all five phases of grief for losing a loved one. Yeah, no, it is it is very powerful stuff. And as Nate mentioned, he probably bleeped out a lot of what I said for spoilers. It is arguably the strongest story arc and character growth of any of the characters in the show. As much as I loved the relationship between Akagi and Shirota, Ibuki alone in that story arc gets the most character growth of any character in the show and i recommend sticking with the show if just to see her later arc like there are other aspects of the show i enjoy as well and we'll definitely get into those more but as an individual character she's the reason i stuck with the show in the later half of it for sure i would say going forward of the three pilots of the show i don't dislike aoyama but I consider his presence the weakest. Now, they show early on in the show that all three pilots are necessary for Diegard. And without getting too spoilery, Aoyama is the first one to sort of shake up the delicate balance needed to pilot Diegard. But what you see in Aoyama is somebody who, because he's already been in the workforce for a while, and he keeps a lot of things close to his chest. You don't see a lot of outward expression from him outside of sarcasm and tasteful bouts of cynicism. He's a little jaded by the workforce, although he knows he's good at what he does. And there's almost a sense of obligation from him to continue going with Diegard, um, even when he doesn't necessarily want to. What I will say I like about Ayama is that he is a person who realizes that there are things outside of his life, outside of him, that he has to be beholden to or responsible to. And he will not drop those responsibilities if he knows he has to attend to them. And that gets shown later in his character development, particularly in the Hokkaido arc when they're up north. You see a character from his past sort of come back into his life and you learn a little bit more about him. But by and large, Aoyama sort of gets overshadowed by some of the other characters. And it's not to say that he's not an entertaining character to see, but he is definitely the least represented of the three pilots. And I actually would have liked to see more from him. I wrote down in my notes that Aoyama is the Jin Hayato of the team. Whereas both Ibuki and Akagi are hot-tempered and impulsive, Aoyama's a lot more laid back. He's more the charmer, per se. But I like what you said, that he's perhaps the most caring of the three Diegard pilots. He understands that there's more to life than just working and piloting the robot. Because we learn, and this really isn't a spoiler, that he tends to his ailing mother, and that that's the most important thing in their life. And what I like about Diegard is that 
even if our three robot pilots are fighting the monster of the week, they have something more that they're fighting for than just the protection of Japan. Akagi's really, I don't want to say he's fighting for himself, but he's fighting for the sake of the company. Ibuki is fighting to avenge her father's passing. And Aoyama is fighting for his mother. Would you agree with that? I would say I mostly agree. I don't think it's entirely wrong to say that Akagi is fighting for himself. It's not to say that Akagi is selfish in doing so, because with Akagi being the kind of young, hot-headed character he is, Akagi is really representative of, as you mentioned, the sort of coming of age that people experience in a young adulthood in the workplace. I think that can be a very shocking experience for people fresh out of college or, you know, who may have gone through a period where they just entered the workforce after maybe not having been in school or employed for a while, just sort of trying to find themselves. And even if it's not direct, to say that Akagi is fighting for perhaps without realizing it, his place in the world is apt. And it's not a selfish thing. Like he wants to feel like his life has meaning and he does it through his work and eventually as he said fighting for the survival of the company which does get quite threatened quite a few times within the show i mostly agree with you for sure the characters definitely do have things they're fighting for outside of the lives of the people of japan and outside of it being their jobs um, and it's good to see those motivations push them forward. The one who has the most to fight for is our favorite character in the show, both you and I, and that is Agent Shirota. I absolutely oh, love him. Yes. He, he perhaps has the biggest arc of any character because he sort of starts off as an agent sent by the Japanese military to oversee the operations of Die Guard because, you know, Japan is so used to having the military defend them in this show. They've never really seen a civilian robot defend the country in years. And so Shirota starts off as effectively a bureaucrat, mostly just there to tell them, hey, you can't do this, you have to follow our protocols, etc. But as the show progresses, Shirota soon realizes just how important Die Guard is, not just for the protection of Japan, but maybe sometimes you do have to bend the rules a tiny bit in order to achieve the greater good. No, I absolutely agree. You know, Shirota is, much like you, the favorite character in the show. And what I like seeing, especially in the later half of the show, there's another character that comes through, and I'm blanking on his name, but he's also from the government, and he's a former Kohai of Shirota. And he's one of these young people who you see in the workforce who is very much by the rules, He's by the book, and he shakes things up quite a bit for the people at 21st Century Protectives when he comes on the scene, especially for Shirota. But when you see this character come on the scene, one of the things I love seeing played out is that it comes at a point where Shirota is realizing that in order for things to work, not only do you have to bend the rules, but you also have to be open to possibilities outside of yourself you know there's this dynamic of the kohai and senpai within japanese culture especially in the japanese workplace and the relationship that akagi and shirota have with one another akagi sort of reminding shirota of not only the passion but sort of the 
the energy, the spark needed to see outside of protocol. And Shiroda in turn, not only focusing Akagi, but at times taking the risk needed to sort of shield him so he could do what they know is the greater good. What is the right thing, even if it's not technically the correct thing? That's something I enjoy seeing quite a bit. And when his other Kohai from the government comes in and sees that Shiroda is not really one to stand by the rules anymore, it is quite an upset for him. And the way he shakes things up at the company is very impressive story arc to see played out because things do not go as expected uh, when certain things are tried, are forced onto 21st century protectives and die guard when the government tries to overstep their bounds. It's really good to see that sort of growth and that being addressed, especially when culturally Japan is this country of heavy bureaucracy and overworked death and things of these nature. And you would have thought a message like that would be something that would be more heavily adopted within the Japanese workplace. But I guess maybe that went over the heads of corporate culture in Japan. I think that's what I like most about Shirota because he goes from a man who believes in doing things by the rule book in the practically and politically correct way to what is done the morally correct way. Do you do what is correct by protocol or do you do what is necessary in order to save the day, even if it means collateral damage or risking the lives of civilians. And believe me, there is a lot of collateral damage in this show. Oh, yeah. Huh. They do not shy away from that at all. And we'll talk about that in a second, but I do want to get some of the lesser characters out of the way. But one character we have to talk about who is probably the actual best girl in the show, and that is the chief scientist lady, Rika Domeki. Rika's great. Rika's great. She's this precious, nerdy little cinnamon roll of a girl. Oh, I love my God. her. I love her. I like her design with the big old nerdy Coke bottle glasses combined with the brown twin tails and that Akihabara dress she's got on. Oh, yeah. Like that clash of like that soft Lolita fashion against just these big old nerdy glasses and this sort of like um, superiority complex she has that she loves rubbing in people's faces even when she's being appreciative of them like she eventually starts a relationship with another character within the crew and even when they're chatting and being flirty and cute together she demands that this character calls her the professor calls her her queen with this utmost respect and i fucking love that about her i love that she demands things of people even when she's being abrasive towards them it's great it's great and she'll do it all with a lollipop in her mouth as well i don't watch this show but her design and attitude she kind of reminds me of like that one forensic nerd lady from ncis yes abby abby yes, yes thank you yeah, yeah. She looks like abby from ncis yeah she does sort of have that like that quirky you know back office sort of vibe to her I think she's sort of a cross between that and for those of you listening that have seen uh, ReZero, you may be familiar with Betty, the 500-year-old girl sitting in the library, the main character. I forget his name, but Subaru's master's castle. 
but it's like a cross between Abby and Betty. She's got that sort of like puffy, sort of pompous, standoffish at times attitude of Betty, but the playfulness and quirkiness of Abby. And it is a fun combination to see in a character. She is all sorts of adorable. And I may have to get a figure of her if there is one um, for sale because she is great. I think the only other female character I enjoy as much as her, although they all have their little quirks, little quirks is um, Tanigawa, the dark-skinned uh, bridge lady. I like in particular, you mentioned that one, a lot of the characters get different arcs in the show. Um, even the, the background characters, the, the tertiary characters that are part of the team, get little arcs and little moments here and there too. And there's an episode where Tanigawa goes on a secret date with one of her co-workers. And I thought that was fantastic that they not only show this, but they keep playing on the fact that Tanigawa has a very specific type, and that specific type is not what you would expect. She's not into muscular men, very much the opposite, and I thought that was great. Yeah, that that, that relationship is kind of icky in my book, but I've seen worse. Yeah. It's, it's, it's ironic that a woman who looks like that and is only 17 commands more respect than the government in the universe of Diegard. Ah, uh, yeah. Well, you know, genius trope. It's okay. Do we want to talk about the bridge bunnies? Because there's four of them that we want to talk about. I had already mentioned Tanigawa, the dark skin one. Yeah, she's um, the, like they all have their own unique personalities, as basic as they are. I wrote down that she's the most hot blooded and irate of the four. Yeah, she absolutely is. I think, like, the one that's the most normal is Noriko Oyama, the one that has the relationship with Akagi later on. Yes, she is definitely the most normcore girl. She's fine. You know, there's nothing really that stands out about her, but, eh, she's there. Then there's Chiaki Nakahara. She's the quiet one, the shy one. Ah, uh, the one that takes in interest in, uh, in Aoyama. Yeah, yeah, uh, the, the green-haired one, the green-haired one. Yes, yes. She's cute. I like her. I like her little soft-spoken nature, and I like that at one point later in the show, she actually stands up for Aoyama despite her her shyness. Um, it is nice seeing her do that on his behalf. And lastly, we have Shizuka Irie. I just wrote down the best one. <laughs> She's tall. She has gray hair. And I should have talked about this when talking about the character design. I wondered why those uniforms that the girls wear look so familiar. And now I understand why she looks like Rain from Tales of Symphonia. It does. She really does. Like, she's got the little Gona guy sideburns for women on her design. <laughs> she absolutely does. She, oh my god. She constantly uh, looked like she's so done with everyone's shit in this series. <laughs> she does, and she looks like she's done with everybody's shit, and then when you least expect it, she will act a certain way, like she will do an impression of a character, and it just throws everybody off, and they're like, where the hell did that come from? It's fantastic. While we're still in the lightning round, I like Chief Osagi as well. You know, he's the mild-mannered company spokesman who's trying to do his best, even if he's got the government bearing down on him. Yeah, no, Chief Osagi is a good boy, you know. He does his best. You know, he's not as uh, assertive as uh, Shiroda, 
but he definitely is one of those supporting characters that you know you know he's always got like the the crew's back he will do what he can even if he doesn't always have the pull to do as much as he wants to but he is always good support you can rely on him for sure then there's President Okuchi, the hard-nosed president of the company, a man who will not budge on principle. He's your classic silent badass president. He doesn't do much in the show, but he has such a commanding presence that you can't ignore him, especially that radical scar over his Yeah, eye. no, no. They never really explained the scar. It's just like it's there. He's got his Captain Carlock fucking, like, facial scar, and it's just like, okay, I accept that you are the president it's sort of like having like nicholas cage be in charge of the united states you just kind of accept <laughs> that it's there you don't really understand it but you're like okay i allow this you know i'd rather have nick cage be president than anyone oh, who the major God. political parties put up yeah yeah and lastly, there are the three guys in purple suits or something. I forget their names and I don't really care about them. I can just sum them up with two words from Scott Steiner. He's fat! Oh, fuck. Yep. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. That's it. So that's it for the major characters. We'll get into some of the minors because we're now getting into the story and... Dieguard, on the surface, feels like a 70s giant robot show. Our characters are going about their daily lives. There's talk of what the villains are going to do. The monster attacks, they get inside, and they save the day. That's what it is on the surface. But deep down, there's a lot going on inside Die Guard that you would not expect going in. Because I just expected a standard super robot comedy show in the vein of the other super robot comedy show by Zebek, uh, Martian successor Nadesco. But lo and behold, there's a lot of depth to what the story is about. Yeah, no, absolutely. We've definitely touched on some of the deeper aspects of the show. We've already mentioned in particular the Senpai Kohai relationship, Akagi and Shiroda. We've touched on the individual character growth of the three main characters, such as uh, Buki addressing her father's death. We see Aoyama, even though he's a cool customer, have moments where he wants to leave uh, the crew because he's sort of fed up with the situation he's in, but he still feels responsibility bound to the greater good and to the crew. And those moments are well and good. But some of the other things that I really enjoyed from the show is the overarching commentary of the oppressive nature of bureaucracy in Japan. I mentioned before that one of the things I found most hilarious was the impracticability of Dieguard. And this is true. Dieguard in many ways is very impracticable for what he's doing, despite the fact that Dieguard is the most successful tool against the heterodynes. But one of the other jokes that gets made often in the show, especially early on when Dieguard's approval needs to be authorized, is there's, I think it's in the second or third episode, there's this scene where Dieguard needs to fight the monster that they weren't able to kill in the first episode. And yeah, that's the, the second episode. Yes, the CEO is like, Look, we've got to make this happen. Die Guard has to be approved 
to do the thing. It's so you see this ridiculous theme play out, spliced amidst the combat of Diegard against the starfish heterodyne of these executives signing papers and going through ridiculous paperwork and tripping, authorizing everything that Diegard's going to do in order to make combat. It's so it's so it's great to see, but it, it just speaks to the impracticability of bureaucracy over what he said, what becomes the fight between the political good, the lawful good versus the moral good. And oh my god, does does Diegard have strong opinions about Japan's office culture and bureaucracy? For sure. There's a lot to unpack with the satirization of just the oppressive nature of the salaryman culture. I mean, to anybody who hates their job, try working as a salaryman in Japan. Those cramped offices, the long days, those dull, drab Japanese offices. Like, you wouldn't survive a day as a salaryman. Yeah, no, you really wouldn't. And mind you, like, my day job is I work in an emergency room, but I still look at documentaries of the Japanese salaryman and, like, the Kiroshi phenomenon in Japan. And for all the hours I've put in at my job, and I have put in some tough weeks, Japanese people still, by and large, on a regular basis, outdo some of my worst weeks at work. And as somebody who works... And emergency healthcare here in America is scared of the Japanese work system. That is a problem. Um, and I'm glad that Diegard addresses some of those issues for sure. Because, wow, um, I can't imagine what it would be like to be in the situation that 21st Century Protectives is in, let alone any salary man in Japan. One of my favorite examples of them satirizing the inefficiency of the government combined with the impracticality of using a giant robot to fight off an alien invasion comes from the aforementioned Hokkaido arc where they can't use Diegard until they get emergency funding approved by the Diet. Oh yes, that was actually a very complex story arc because the Hokkaido arc and some of the hindrances that they faced were a lot more complex than I was expecting because one of the things that I actually like about the Hokkaido arc is most of the heterodyne activity, actually all of it that you see is localized in Japan. And one of the biggest problems that you see that comes from the Hokkaido arc is even if the outside world isn't facing heterodynes directly, you see the first problems of dealing with heterodynes as they affect international relationships. And that is a very big deal for the company because of the nature of dealing with this and how the Japanese government chooses to respond to these problems. It's a slog. It is a slog. And it is to the point where you actually see another character with a sort of similar brazen energy to Akagi, 
who wants to do the morally right thing, even to a greater extreme than Akagi would do. And it is troubling to see that despite the fact that he ultimately doesn't go through with what it is he tries, that you sympathize with him because it is another situation where the bureaucracy of the situation that they're facing is stunting actual action. And it's painful to watch because you see this one character take it really personally. And it's hard. It's hard. You see this man go through changes that are quite troubling, but it's also a good show of Akagi's growth because it's the first time you see Akagi, you see the effects that Shiroda has on Akagi as Akagi applies them to somebody else. And I thought that was great, but God damn, man, the Hokkaido arc is, is rough for the Daigar team. It is very rough. And of course, because it's Daigard, and I should have mentioned this back during the design, Daigard also gets uh, upgrades to its weaponry, and even, like, it gets more streamlined later on in a much more subtle way. Like, they don't even unveil a new Daigard model, it's just that they modified it enough to the point where it has a faster transformation sequence. And I want to talk about that for a second, because the show that Daigard is obviously taking inspiration from is Pat Labor. Oh yes, absolutely. Diegard's transformation in this because most super robots have these big flashy transformation sequences and this is where I bring up the comparison to Pat Labor Diegard has to be transported via trucks like how the labors are transported in Pat Labor yes 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 but Diegard's transformation and transport is much more involved it comes it in parts it is hilarious. It's my favorite part of the show. It's some of the best humor in the show. It really does show just how impractical super robot logic is when applied to a real world setting. Yeah, absolutely. It is fantastic to see. Um, we mentioned before when we were talking about the monsters, the episode in which they were fighting the floating monster in the countryside that Daigard couldn't really hit because it just kind of butterflied on past him. There are, what, three transformation sequences within that episode alone? And just seeing Daigard get pulled up in scaffolding, pulled up with these wires, take a shot, miss, and then be like, okay, team, we gotta intercept the monster, we're gonna try again disassembled scaffolding down trucks and helicopters go ahead of the monster put together oh my god it is fantastic it is hilarious that episode is great laugh it is a great time i do want to talk about the weapon since i forgot to talk about that but it has a drill arm a la getter two and that's also where the bar attack comparisons come from because bar attack also has the drill arm it also has a net launcher that it only uses like once or twice through the series yeah, the net launcher actually gets first introduced in that same episode I'm mentioning. It also has the best rocket punch I've ever seen in an anime that isn't done by a Mazinger mech. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty fantastic. We won't spoil it. You'll just have to watch to find out what we mean. And mm. we mentioned this weapon early on, but its signature finishing weapon is the Knot Buster. You said that it reminded you of the Big O's Piston Punch. To me... Yes. It looked more like Galgaigar's dividing driver with how it fits on its arm. I could see that too. Yeah, 
I could definitely see that. But the the ideal of this sort of like pile bunker sort of power hit, it definitely is something I miss about seeing uh, giant robots. It's a what? It's an armament that I wish I would be shown in more recent mech anime, as few and far in between as they are, and it just seems to have been forgotten. But I love it. I love pile bunkers and like the heavy punches and whatnot. They're great. And of course, as we mentioned, Diegard gets some competition later on with Koku Bogar. But naturally, because this is a super robot show and a bit of a satire, the government is completely ineffective at fighting the Heterodyne compared to a giant robot operated by civilians, once again proving that sometimes the private sector really can do things better than the government. Or, to quote Mike Nelson from MST3K, I'm the government, I'm the government, I'm the reason nothing works. <laughs> oh, it really is true. With the exception of, I think, one episode in particular where they make it a point of showing that... It's very interesting what they do with the concept of how the super robot works in the real world. But outside of it just being a satire of Japanese work culture and the ineffective of the Japanese government bureaucracy, there's one thing that Diegard has that I was not expecting, and that's heart. And we already talked about this with how the three main characters get their own little arcs. But there's one episode in particular that sticks out as being a favorite of me, and that is one that does not involve any sort of monster fight whatsoever, it's one where they have to make a movie, or a sizzle reel, for the 21st Century Defense Corporation. Uh, yes, that actually was a very charming episode, especially the way it contrasts with the episode that precedes it. That is quite a contrast, but that episode in and of itself is very wholesome, and you get to see even the secondary and tertiary characters have these little moments with people in the city that they're filming in scott mcleod comic book author and he writes a lot of these books he mentions a lot of times one of the things he loves about anime and manga is what he calls the beauty of the mundane uh just those little scenes where maybe you'll see like a little background scene of whether it's the sky or a butterfly passing by in the background that the characters are in a lot of that episode that you mentioned in particular, it is that. It is that sort of Japanese appreciation for the beauty of the mundane, of the little things in day-to-day -day life that we take for granted. And it's, it's incredibly wholesome. I was not expecting that from the show. And the show overall, whether it's in its moments of satire or moments of action, it comes from a very genuine place you could tell that the production crew as they were working on this despite uh what we said much earlier in this podcast about how the animation hasn't aged well visually that's true but the overall presentation of the show comes from a place of deep love for what they were doing for this project and the show just oozes charm in a way you don't see very often with current titles and i think that that aspect is what helps the show age gracefully visually it may not have but overall because of its presentation and its ability to show those beautiful moments in between the the comedy and the action 
that's what gives the show its charm. It's a mecha that really considers the human factor of its story. And I won't spoil the ending to that episode, but it really comes into play during that mini-movie episode. And Dygard, it's very charming, it has a lot of heart, and the human factor is just something that you don't see in a lot of modern mecha anime, at least not in the original stuff. I know I'm going to get flack for this, but I absolutely despise Alv Noah Zero, mostly because it's a cheap knockoff of the original 1979 Gundam series. But one of the reasons why I detest it also is we don't see much of what happens to the human population on Earth. It's just assumed that they were all enslaved or killed by the Martian Empire. We don't see any sort of pockets of resistance or fallout from the attacks in that show. It just focuses on the fights between the Mars mechs and the Earth Resistance. That's it. Dygard, meanwhile, understands that, that people are going to be affected by these monster fights. People get injured. People get hurt. People die. And there are a lot of scenes like that in this show where we see the effects that Dygard has on the civilian population. No, I very much agree, and I'm glad that you mentioned that, because you mentioned, you know, seeing the human aspect get lost in certain titles. Now, I've not seen Al Noah Zero, but speaking, I guess, of what is technically a current mech anime, which is 86, although 86 leans more towards the war aspect of storytelling than it does to mecha, uh, it does have its moments where it shows humanity even within the bleakness. But I think the big difference and the big takeaway I took from Die Guard is aside from it being a satire of, you know, both mecha anime and bureaucracy of Japan, at its core, the action elements of Die Guard are not... Die Guard is a disaster response team. It's a disaster response team disguised as a monster of the week mecha anime. Yes, they're dealing with monster threats in the form of heterodyne, but even within the divulgence of what the heterodyne are and what you find out that the heterodyne are made of, what you really come to respect is that the heterodyne represent natural disasters. They don't really represent monsters. In Die Guard, especially those later episodes, they are not about the fight against the monster it is about what does it mean in the face of a disaster in the face of struggle to come together for your community to stand up and do something to help your community those moments where you really get frustrated with the way bureaucracy hinders die guard and the team responsible for it um it is not because it is the threat of a monster per se. It is because these disasters are affecting people and why aren't you doing something about it already? Why aren't you helping? If I had to compare the way these threats are handled and what frustrations come from government response or private response or lack thereof, think of any big natural disaster you've seen. You know, whether it's... uh the Fukushima nuclear disaster in the wake of those tsunamis, whether it's Hurricane Katrina, 
or Hurricane Sandy, look at the way those disasters affect human life and infrastructure and the personal meaning of day-to-day living. Die Guard is about addressing those issues and holding on to what it is to be human in the face of, of tragedy. And aside from those calm moments, those moments of disaster relief are what really makes Die Guard special. And it's something as somebody, like I said earlier, I do work in emergency medicine. Uh, we do do emergency drills for disasters. It's something I appreciate seeing because that bureaucracy can be very grating, especially when disaster really does hit and you realize just how at times unprepared you can be even in the best of circumstances. It's really well done. Dargard really represents the human spirit in the face of disaster quite well. It's amazing how what I thought was going to be a super robot comedy show turned into one that had so much to say about the nature of government, bureaucracy, the Japanese workplace, and that sometimes you may have to bend the rules in order to achieve your moral goal. And I don't know if Seiji Mizushima or Fumihiko Shimo knew it at the time, but Die Guard is, and I'm gonna get crucified for saying this, shockingly deep. No, I absolutely agree. Die Guard was a much more complex and nuanced show than I was expecting it to be. When you first suggested I watch it so we could discuss it on the podcast, I actually had my reservations about whether I would enjoy the show or whether it was worth, you know, getting into. But as I allowed myself to sit through the episodes and let them play out, no, Die Guard does not get the respect it deserves in the canon of shonen mecha anime. It has a lot to say. And I I really hope that this podcast sort of makes people more aware of it because it is underrated as hell. Don't write this show off. I know that Mecha may not be a lot of people's favorites, but Die Guard is much more than just a giant robot show. It's a giant robot show that deals with the lives of everyday humans. Both the people who pilot the robots, the people who oversee the people who pilot the robots, and the people affected by these giant robot fights. No, absolutely. Like, I think we sort of hit on, you know, at the end of the day, Die Guard is disaster response masquerading as a giant mecha shonen anime. And if any sort of disaster response movie or show has ever caught your interest, or that's a story that you're sort of interested in seeing, yes, pick up Die Guard. You will be surprised at how into it you will get as the show plays out. It is a slow burn for sure, but it will leave an impression on you. Die Guard will leave an impression. And that said, I think we've pretty much given our final thoughts on Die Guard. What I thought was a decent show coming out of it would eventually turn, thanks to this conversation, into a show that's more than the sum of its parts. It's a very heartfelt show, and if you want something a little different or a gem from the late 90s, by all means, check this show out. Now, this show was originally released by ADV Films, but has since been picked up by Discotech Media, which means it's streaming practically everywhere. On Crunchyroll, on Amazon Prime, 
on Tubi, on Retro Crush. Like, you can find this thing anywhere, and it is available on DVD, but to me, if you're gonna own a DVD, if you see that chonky brick available anywhere at, like, a thrift shop, you pick that up, because that thing is a beauty. If you can, make some time to watch Die Guard. And check out some other Super Robot shows from the 90s and early 2000s, because there are some good ones around there, and I hope to talk about some of them. But that's going to do it for this show. If you enjoyed our rather lengthy conversation, be sure to leave a like, subscribe, and follow us on places like SoundCloud, Spotify, Podbean, iTunes, and Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your podcasts from. Next time on the Otaku Nate Show, we go from hot-blooded super robot action with a dash of human life to a romance story set to the city poptacular soundscapes of the 1980s as we look at the one-shot OAV 1919. So before we go, do you have anything to plug? At the moment, no. Um, I'm currently working on... Uh, a few different side projects that I can't get into at the moment because I've signed a non-disclosure agreement. But I will say when the time comes, do look forward to visual art from me uh, across Instagram. If you do want to follow me for that upcoming visual art, you can follow me on Instagram at Bronx Kuma. And I post most of my sketches and works in progress there. Aside from that, if you're interested in listening to my old music, I do have a, a SoundCloud that is still up, even though I don't use it anymore. And you can listen to some of my awful attempts at chiptune at Bronx Kluma at SoundCloud as well. But Nate, I really want to thank you for having me. The show, pardon me, as well as just having this conversation with you, this experience has been one of the more entertaining things I've done in the past few months. Thanks. And I can't thank you enough for it. I hope we can have you as a regular man. Oh, man. That that touches my soul. That means a lot to me. So until then, this is Otaku Nate. Hey, this is Bronx Kuma. And we're signing off and saying, make the coffee, file the paperwork, save the day. Okay.